Psychologists have pointed out lots of other kinds of intelligence that I think are also important. Social intelligence, for example, the ability to get along with other people. If you look at major leaders, they may not be the smartest people in the room, but they're good at working with people in cooperative ways. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that will encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash a-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today is a philosopher who specializes in cognitive science philosophy of mind, and the philosophy of science and medicine. He's a prolific writer and has contributed to research in analogy and creativity, inference, cognition in the history of science, and the role of emotion in cognition. He's authored 13 books and over 200 articles in the realms of cognitive science, philosophy of mind, and the philosophy of science. So please, help me in welcoming our guest today, the Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at the University of Waterloo, Dr. Paul Thagard. Dr. Thagard, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show today. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you for talking with me. So Dr. Thagard, let's, let's take this back. Uh, what kind of a kid were you in high school? Well, I was pretty nerdy. I spent a lot of time reading and a lot of time studying. But I was more well-rounded than that. I also played a lot of sports fairly competently, and at least by grade 12, I even dated a lot. And you grew up in, if I recall, Saskatchewan? Yes, yeah, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Uh, so did you play a lot of like hockey or, or anything like that out there? I was never very good at hockey, but I played a lot of basketball and other sports. So when you were in high school, what did you think your future would look like? Well, I had a very early plan, quite bizarrely early, in fact. When I was 15, I got a job shelving books at the Saskatoon Public Library. And I was shelving a book one day, and it was called Why I'm Not a Christian by Bertrand Russell. And I thought, that looks interesting, because my religious questions were starting to grow. And so that's what got me interested in philosophy. So I started reading philosophy. And around the same time, at the same job, I was shelving books in the reference section where there was a job section, and they had a job called professor. And I thought, that sounded kind of cool. And so I decided at that rather early age to be a philosophy professor. Quite astonishingly, it actually worked out. So what kind of philosophy did you start getting into as a 15-year-old? Well, there I was mostly, I was just reading a few 
famous people like Bertrand Russell and Jean-Paul Sartre, nothing specific. And I didn't have any specific interests when I started at the University of Saskatchewan studying philosophy. But then I got lucky and I got a scholarship to Cambridge University and there where I did a second BA. And the part of the BA program I took was connected to uh, logic, but it came tied with a program in philosophy of science. Before then, I wasn't really interested in science or philosophy of science, but I found it absolutely fascinating because going to lectures in the history of science gave me a whole different picture of the way that knowledge is structured and grows. So that's when I moved into philosophy of science as my main specialty. And if you were to, to kind of distill down like philosophy of science into just a, a quick nugget for us to understand what that means, would you be able to do that for us? Yeah, philosophy of science looks at the kinds of methods that scientists do things like formulate theories. How do they generate theories? How do they creatively come up with new ideas? And then once they've got new ideas, they need to test them. What's the nature of the testing that they do? Sometimes in a field, you'll have competing theories. How do they figure out which is the better theory? So these are some of the problems that scientists kind of take for granted because they're doing science. But what philosophers of science do is step back and think about the kinds of thinking and reasoning that scientists use to do that. And after you studied philosophy of science, you moved into cognitive science and into the philosophy of, of mind. Talk to us about that. Talk to us about that journey that led you from the, the second BA at Cambridge to the work you're doing now. I did my PhD in philosophy of science at the University of Toronto. But I got a job teaching philosophy at the University of Michigan at Dearborn. And that allowed me to live in Ann Arbor, which is the, where the main University of Michigan is. And there I met some philosophers and some psychologists. And that's how I got interested in cognitive science, because there was a cognitive science program there. And they were doing a combination of philosophy and psychology. And that's what first got me interested in artificial intelligence, because I started realizing that that was a whole new methodology for doing philosophy. You can build computer programs to look at how people think. So while I was in Michigan, I then did a master's degree in computer science so I could build my own models. That's really fascinating. I'd love to get into some of the work that you've done, specifically one of your older books, The Brain and the Meaning of Life. This book actually um, stumbled across it on, on Amazon and I picked it up and started reading it and I was just like, wow, this is awesome. So I reached out to you and glad it worked out. But let's, let's dig into this a little bit. First question you, you kind of bring up fairly early on in the book, the difference between a mind and a brain. Do you mind talking to us about that? Sure. The, the common sense view is that they're completely different things because uh, most people belong to religious groups that think that we're going to survive our deaths. So they think that it doesn't matter once the body's gone, the brain is gone, the mind keeps on going in heaven or wherever. Um, I don't think that's very plausible. There's no evidence that the mind can survive beyond the brain. So I think it's basically the same thing. It's a little more complicated than saying the mind is the brain, but that's a good approximation. Yeah, like that very front center of the book, all, all minds are brains, I think is the, the phrase in there. So you talk about concepts of perception and inference. Can you define these for us and how do these enable us, our brains, to know reality? It's very complicated because there's not a direct connection. So it's not as if you just see the world and it's exactly the way you think it is because it takes a whole lot of brain processing to create 
a reliable image of the world. But we start with our senses. So you get information through your eyes and through your ears and through touch and movements of your body. And so that's providing data that go into your brain. And the brain has to make sense of it. It has to kind of act like the scientist does and to come up with a theory of what's going on. And that's what requires inference. Inference is where you take the information you get from the senses and other things that you know and come up with new views of what's going on in the world. So you don't, when you see a person, you can see their body, but you have to make inferences about what you're seeing because it's a lot of processing of the auditory information and the visual information to figure out what's actually going on. So pardon me here for kind of a naive-ish question. So different brains can kind of perceive reality in, in, in different ways, right? So how is it possible for the brain to discern that, you know, what it's looking at is like the one objectively true reality if all we have is our perception of it? Well, it's not always easy. If you've had too much to drink, for example, you can make a lot of false inferences. But our brains are all pretty much the same. And so you might wonder, well, how, do you, how is your perception the same as my perception? And the answer is all members of the human species have essentially the same kind of brain and same kind of sense organs. Sometimes there are problems with them, but by and large, they're the same. And so the information is coming in, and you've got various ways of checking it. So if you're looking at something, say a tomato, is that a tomato? Well, you can see what it looks like, you can taste it, you can touch it, you can smell it. You've got all sorts of ways of collecting information that give you a pretty good reason to believe, yes, that is a tomato. Not absolutely guaranteed. You could Maybe it's a fake tomato and someone's playing a trick on you, but you've got pretty good reason to believe when you infer that that's a tomato. And all humans also have these emotions, right? And you talk quite nicely in your book about emotions. Can you kind of give us a rundown of the systems in our brain that make emotions possible? Well, many people think that somehow emotions get in the way of thinking. I've heard many people say, are you being rational? Are you being emotional? But that's just completely wrong. Emotions are actually a really important to rationality because they give you an idea of what's important. When you're wandering around the street or even your house, you can pay attention to many different sorts of things, but you need to pay attention to what matters to you, what's going to keep you alive, what's going to keep you happy. And emotions do provide that kind of focus. On the brain, and not just human brains, but lots of other animals too, are very well evolved to play that role. So there's different parts of the brain have different functions. You've got pleasure centers that will tell you what is going to be making you happy, what's going to feel good. But you also have pain centers. You also have areas like the amygdala, which are very good for making judgments about emotions such as fear and sadness. So it really requires a whole bunch of different brain areas working together. But when they do that, they're not just doing emotion stuff. They're interacting in really valuable ways with all the inferences you're making to try to indicate what's worth paying attention to, what's worth making inferences about. So emotions are really crucial for helping you evaluate your situation, determine what's worth thinking about, and then ultimately helping you decide what to do. Because it's not just a matter of taking in perceptions and making inference, you also have to decide what you're going to do in the world to keep yourself alive and happy. And you, so you talk about the cognitive appraisals and body perceptions as well. Can you kind of define those for us? Well, the perceptions are originating with what you get from the senses. So light comes into your eye and hits the retina, 
and that stimulates cells that send signals to the back of your brain, and that's where a lot of the visual processing starts. In your nose, you've got receptors, and they detect molecules of different shapes, and that's where smell begins. In the case of tongues, you've got your uh, sensors on, in the tip of your tongue. And so all this goes into the brain, and then the brain has to somehow make sense of it. It has to be able to figure out what of various interpretations makes the most sense, given a combination of what senses are, are telling you, but also what you have from past experience. Because all of us, once, once we're past being babies, have got large amounts of experiences that we can draw on. So the brain puts it all together into a coherent picture that says, for example, this is a tomato, or no, that's an apple, or that's a cucumber. Thanks for digging into that for us. I found this line fascinating in your book. You don't tell your brain what to do, and your brain doesn't tell you what to do. You are a brain deciding what to do in your physical and social environment. I'd love to get into how the brain makes decisions. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, definitely. Yeah. So the question is, how does the brain make decisions? Yes. Well, it's really complicated because, of course, it's taking information from the senses, as we've been talking about, but it also has to make different kinds of inferences about what's true. But the most important thing it has to do for decisions is try to figure out how to accomplish your goals. So any decision of any complexity is going to require you to look at different kinds of goals. So, for example, you've got two job offers and you're trying to decide which job to take. Well, that's usually not simple because different jobs have got different strengths. One might be more, more interesting to you, another offers more money. So the brain has to figure out how to balance those things. So emotion's a big part of that, but so is also doing inferences about the consequences. If you take the first job, is that going to make you happy in the short run, but unhappy in the long run? Or the other one will maybe you get money, but do you really need money? What do you need money for? How much money do you need? So you have to do all these kinds of inferences. And the amazing thing about the brain is it's not like a normal computer where you just make one inference at a time, where you do this, 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 this. What the brain does is make these inferences in parallel. What that means is you've got billions of cells in your brain. They're all firing simultaneously, and they're all interacting simultaneously. Every one of these 80 billion neurons interacting with 10,000 other neurons. So it's very different from when we talk verbally, where we say one thing at a time. It's very different from what a standard computer does, which does one thing at a time. The brain can do billions of things at a time. And what it's doing is a kind of balancing act. It's balancing your different goals, different inference you have. And then finally, it comes to consciousness. Most of what the brain does is unconscious. You don't know what's happening. You just can't observe it at all. But Consciousness provides you a tiny window where after you've done this unconscious deliberation, for example, of one job versus another, and then you can see, oh, yeah, that's what I should do. I should take job A, for example. So you talked about representing actions and goals, right? And and we have to take into consideration what their roles and the decisions that we, we make. Why is it that some people get into this analysis paralysis where they have goals that maybe are aligned with each other and there's various courses of action they could take to get there, but they don't know which path to take? Well, it's a good exercise to do. Benjamin Franklin actually proposed this. He said, if you've got a tough decision, make a piece of paper and have two 
charts of two two tables and you list the strength and, mi and minuses the, the the pluses and minuses of different things but quite often people do that and they see that there's more pluses in one side more minuses and then they ignore it and do something else and the reason is that means that they simply haven't done the calculation right the analysis is actually very hard because you don't always know what's most important to you uh, it gets even more complicated if you're doing a decision that's, say, not just about a job, but suppose it's a job that requires you to move and you've got a partner to take into account. Then you're balancing not just the merits of different jobs, but the importance of the relationship as well. And so you've got a really difficult kind of, of balancing act to do there. And is, is it because, you know, everything leading up to one point, right, the past is done, it's fixed, the past is written, but the future is kind of like a multiverse of unfolding possibilities, right? So it's very difficult when you're here and now to kind of think through and imagine through what might unfold from a decision that you take right now. That's one of the problems, but there's problems about the past too. We can't always remember how we acted before. We don't always remember what was successful and what wasn't. We often don't learn from our mistakes. So the past is problematic as well. But the biggest problem, of course, in these big decisions is taking a wild guess about what's actually going to accomplish your goals when you've got very limited data. Look at the scientists right now. The government's trying to make decisions about COVID-19. It's incredibly difficult because there are so many unknowns that are involved. And they've got different, sometimes competing goals. They want to open the economy. On the other hand, they want to slow down the spread of the disease. And so you've got this kind of balancing act that's very hard to accomplish. And why is it that we don't learn from our past as well as we should? Well, sometimes we just don't remember and we don't understand the mistakes we made in the past. So remember, conscious decision-making, you can only keep a small number of things in mind at once, whereas everything that you've done in the past might potentially be relevant, but you can't think that. That's where pencil and paper is useful because you can start writing down things and it provides an external memory which is much larger than the very limited short-term memory we have operating in our brains. So let's say somebody is facing a decision that they're kind of having a challenging time deciding which action to take. Um, would you say a good thing for them to do is maybe, like you said, pull out pen and paper and maybe draw out decision tree and talk about, okay, if I take this action, then this might happen, this might happen, this might happen, and maybe assign probabilities to each thing that they think, like, you know, if I do this, then event A will occur with probability 10%, so on and so forth. Does that make sense? Well, you can do that, but it, some of it's just bogus because you don't actually know the probabilities and you don't know the utilities. And so if you think you could turn this into a mathematical calculation the way economists want to do, you're really fooling yourself because you just don't know the numbers. With that kind of case, it's garbage in, garbage out. So you can make up numbers, you can make up guesses, but you really don't know. That's why I think it has to be more a matter of emotional coherence. You have to get an emotional reaction that will do the balancing in your brain based on things you may not easily access. You may not realize how important a particular kind of work is to you or how important your relationship is to you. That all has to be sorted out. Uh, I've actually developed a new technique for decision-making since I wrote that book that I, I used when I decided uh, to retire. And I figured this is a really important decision. I wasn't going to really retire because I was going to keep on writing books. But when I stopped teaching, which I liked, the way I did it was to have a weekly vote because I figured you don't want to make a decision based on a momentary whim. Moods change from time to time. You think about different sorts of things. 
But I decided that what I would do is vote every week. And so every Sunday for months, I took a vote. At this moment, do I want to retire or not retire? And when I first started doing it, the votes came out, don't retire. But then after a while, the votes started to trend the other direction. So then I was pretty sure I wanted to retire. So it was a way of trying to bring all the relevant factors and not just rely on a particular state of mind in a particular moment. So I want to go back to this thing about probabilities. Do you think the brain itself, does, do we have trouble conceptualizing probabilities and what they mean? Well, probabilities are a wonderful invention. But you remember, they're an invention. There was Pascal in the 17th century who, got, who figured out probabilities. My old teacher, Ian Hacking, used to joke that if you knew probability theory in Rome, you could have owned the whole empire because you could have won, won all the games of chance. People didn't really figure out probability until the 17th century. Now, it's a great tool when you've got data to get some handle on what the probabilities are. But brains aren't set up that way. Brains evolved long before Pascal invented probability theory. And we do things much more crudely. Basically, we go with emotions, even when we're trying to figure out whether something's true or not, is not just whether it's good or not. We often go on emotions. And that's often good when you've got to make quick decisions. But when you've got a complex decision with lots of factors, it can get you in a lot of trouble. So if you're in situations such as the medical world, where there's loads of data and you can use the probabilities, that's the way you should go. There's wonderful formulas to help you make good sophisticated statistical inferences. But life usually isn't like that. We don't have the probabilities and we don't actually have the built-in operating system to use those probabilities very well. Now, you can try to do it. You can try to calculate expected utility the way an economist says, but that's usually not possible in real-life decisions. And when it comes to these emotional reactions that we have, is there any way where we can tame these emotional reactions so we can be a bit more reasonable or thoughtful in how we are reacting? Well, taming isn't quite the right word. That's the way Plato thought of it. He thought the mind was kind of like a chariot and you had to, and, and the charioteer had to keep the, the emotional horse under control. But that's not right because as neuroscientists like Damasio pointed out, the emotions are actually incredibly valuable because they do give us an idea of what really matters. But of course, you need to be careful with them because sometimes they go out of control. So you never want to make a decision when you're really angry, for example, because that's going to distort your decisions. So you've got to watch out for extremes of emotion, such as extreme anxiety, or people are often told not to make a decision for a year after when they're suffering for grief. And so when emotions are extreme. But if you avoid those extremes, the emotions are actually going to give you a, a much better idea of what matters to you, what you want to be guiding your decisions, than some kind of uh, pseudo-numerical calculation. So in your book, you go into some great detail regarding six suggestions for making bad decisions, which I thought was great because usually people want to give you suggestions on making good decisions. So talk to us about these, uh, this framework for, <laughs> for making bad decisions. Well, I thought it would be fun to keep track of ways in which people screw up. <laughs> it's just, just a way of putting it in more amusing form. So... Uh, I told you that the way I made my retirement decision was to do it actually over a period of a year and a half with this weekly vote. But people rush into things. I've seen people uh, retire by getting, because they get mad at their department chair and say, I quit. Well, that's a horrible way to get, make a decision. So the first way to screw it up is to do it really rapidly and rush into something. People do the same thing when they make really important personal relationships like 
fall madly in love and get engaged right away and make these rapid decisions. So the first way to mess it up is to make uh, rapid decisions. Uh, another way is to not collect a lot of information. And sometimes, often, you can get more information. So you don't have to buy the first car that looks good in an ad. You can use sources of reliable information like consumer reports and find out whether that car's a lemon. So another way to screw up is to don't bother collecting information. Go with your gut. Uh, Donald Trump is really good at that. He doesn't need what scientists tell him. He just goes, he makes decisions with no information at all. Another thing is to only consider some of your goals. So just focus on one goal. Um, for example, if you're thinking about a job, just obsess with how much money does it pay? Well, that's not rational. Money is important, but there's lots of other things that are important too. It's got to be satisfying. It's got to be compatible with your personal life. So if you just focus on one goal, you're likely to screw up your decisions. Another way is to not take into account what other people are thinking. So another really good thing to do is just ask other people because they're not going to be as blind to some sort of thing as you are. You, you can you, you can really valuable, but it can be really valuable to talk over a decision with somebody who knows you and knows what your values are and can help you do that. So that was another one. And I can't read the other ones that I've written down here. So anyway, that's most of them. Thank you for sharing that. It was very entertaining. I enjoyed that. So audience wants to know, they're, they're relying on your answer here, Dr. Thagard. Why is life worth living? And what is the meaning of it all? Well, that's the really big question. Uh, and there have been some people who say, well, it isn't. There's, there's even a uh, South African philosopher who wrote a book called Better Never to Have Been Born. And so he says people shouldn't have children because their lives will just be crap. And he's still around, which is a little puzzling, but obviously he doesn't think that lives are worth living at all. So that's the skeptical answer. The skeptical answer sometimes comes to people because they're abandoning religion. So if you're religious, well, there's not a question because it's, the meaning of life is established by God. God made you and gave you a, a place in the world and a purpose. So religion provides one way of having it all taken care of because the meaning, the purpose of life comes from the religion, comes from God. But for those of us who aren't religious, the question is, is just really legitimate. What, what is the meaning of life? And in my book, I came up with a fairly simple slogan. The whole answer is more complicated than that. But to put it in a slogan, I think the meaning of life is love, work, and play. That originated actually with a comment of Freud, where somebody asked him, and he said, well, life is basically meaningless, but love and work are good things to pursue. Well, I think that's enough to be able to say that the meaning of life is love and work. These are the things that, in fact, People care about a lot. They care about their personal relationships. Uh, that doesn't have to be just romantic love. It's also counting families, extended families, but also friendships. These are all things that, that I think make lives enormously worth living for children or parents or friends. If you've got these people as part of your lives, then that's a, a, by itself enough to make your life meaningful. Work, I think, is also important for lots of people because it involves a sense of accomplishment. People have a need for achievement, or at least a lot of people do. And if work is a main way of getting that. And so if you can get into a kind of job that provides satisfaction, then that's also an enormous source of meaningful life. So I've been really delighted to be a philosophy professor, and I'm happy that I'm continuing to write books. And so that gives me that sense of achievement and purpose that is really important. But 
in keeping with the relationships in my life that are really important. I used to think that Freud had it with just love and work, but then I had a friend who I told this theory to, and he said, well, you know what I really like is hiking in the mountains. And I realized, well, that's interesting. That's play. That's neither love nor work, but play is important too. And so lots of people have things in their life like sports or watching television or reading good novels. And I think that's also a valuable source. So I think if you can have a reasonable balance of love, work, and play, it actually fits well with psychological theories about basic needs. And then that seems to me all the answer one needs to say, well, why love? Well, because you can do some combination of those. I find it interesting, like, you know, as a data scientist, I do a lot of very quantitatively heavy lifting, just it's hard work, it's, it's meaningful work, I enjoy it. But I find that sometimes the biggest breakthroughs I have when I'm working on a really tough problem actually happen while I'm playing. Why is that? Okay, that's not a theory about the meaning of life. It's a really interesting question about problem solving. So there's a common phenomenon that people have a difficult problem to solve, and then they can't do it, and then they leave it aside. And you mentioned playing sports or something, and then the idea pops into your head. For me, I often get solutions to problems when I leave them and then sleep and wake up in the morning and I've already got the answer. So psychologists call that incubation. The idea is there's an incubation period. But there's a much better explanation of that from a neural point of view because your brain doesn't stop working. Consciously, you're not solving the problem or dealing with the data issue anymore. Consciously, you're playing sports or you're sleeping. But of course, your brain doesn't stop when you sleep. The evidence for that is your brain, is your, is your dreams, but lots of other, other kinds of thinking is going on as well. So there's all sorts of unconscious processing going on. So remember, consciousness is just a tiny tip of the iceberg of what's happening in your brain. The processing is being going on in parallel with these billions of neurons. So even though consciously you're playing sports or consciously having a crazy dream or uh, being unconsciously asleep, there's lots of processing goes on. And so some of the inferences that are required to solve that problem are happening way below the, the point of consciousness. And then when you're playing the sport or when you wake up in the morning, then the answer pops into your head magically, it seems, but it's not magic. It's unconscious processing by these billions of neurons working in parallel. I was reading something recently, transient hypofrontality. Is that the same phenomenon or is this something completely different? I've never heard that term before. Okay. I should check what kind of books I'm reading then. <laughs> so yeah. thank you very much for that. I really appreciated breaking that down for us. I'd love to get into your latest book, Bots and Beasts. So in that book, you talk about three aspects of the concept of intelligence. Can you talk about these and tell us what they are? I wrote this book on intelligence concerned with machines and animals and humans. And a lot of people would expect I'd have to start with a definition of intelligence because people say, well, define your terms. How can you talk about intelligence if you can't define it? But that shows a misunderstanding about the nature of concepts. There are dozens of definitions of intelligence floating around there, but frankly, none of them are very good. But that makes complete sense if you understand the psychology of concepts. So when psychologists have done experimental studies of concepts, they don't look for definitions because they know that those are very rare outside of, uh, outside of mathematics. But they notice three other aspects. One is examples. So you may not be able to give a strict definition of intelligence in terms of necessary and sufficient conditions, 
you know, lots of intelligent people that you can name. You can name Einstein, for example, or Marie Curie, or Jane Austen, or Martin Luther King. You can give lots of examples of intelligent people. So examples provide us with a hook onto a concept, even if we can't say generally what it consists of. So that's the first aspect is examples. The second aspect is features. By features, I don't mean defining features, where you can say something's uh, intelligent if and only if it has these features. It's much looser. They're typical features. You have features that occur in most cases of intelligence. And so that's where you can look at things like being able to solve problems and learn and make decisions and do reasoning. And according to my account, also have feelings. So these are typical features. They're not required always for intelligence, but they're typical features. So that's the second aspect. The third aspect is explanation, because a big role of what concepts do for us is provide explanations. They say why things happen. So we use the concept of intelligence all the time in explanations. We use it to explain, for example, why somebody was able to do something. How could he do a challenging job like being a data scientist? Well, he because he or she is intelligent, so it's explanatory. Or we sometimes say that one person is more intelligent than another. So you've got these ways of being explanatory with the concept as well. So the three aspects of intelligence of a concept that I apply to intelligence are examples and features and explanations. What's up, artists? I would love to hear from you. Feel free to send me an email to theartistsofdatascience at gmail.com. Let me know what you love about the show. Let me know what you don't love about the show. And let me know what you would like to see in the future. I absolutely would love to hear from you. I've also got open office hours that I will be hosting. And you can register by going to bitly.com com forward slash a d s o h i look forward to hearing from you all and i look forward to seeing you in the office hours let's get back to the episode can you talk to us about some of the kinds of intelligence then that contribute to human intelligence People sometimes think that there's just one kind of intelligence, which is what IQ tests measure. IQ tests measure some of the aspects. They're very good at figuring out how good you are with language or how good with your mathematics and abstract reasoning. But psychologists have pointed out lots of other kinds of intelligence that I think are also important. Social intelligence, for example, the ability to get along with other people. If you look at major leaders, they may not be the smartest people in the room, but they're good at working with people in cooperative ways. One aspect of social intelligence is emotional intelligence, which requires you to understand your own emotions and the emotions of other people and to be able to empathically work with them. There are lots of other kinds of more cognitive intelligence, too, that I think count there. Look at uh, bodily intelligence. If you consider a great basketball player, for example, who can make split-second decisions in the middle of the air, that's intelligence because that's doing something that requires problem-solving and learning. Um, so that's another sort. The kind of intelligence that's most mysterious to me, since I have none of it, is musical intelligence. One of my sons is able to hear a tune and then play it on six different instruments. And that's just magic to me. But there does seem to be also music intelligence. So these are 
things that I think definitely count to, as intelligence, but don't fall under the narrow rubric of IQ. So when it comes to things like, like you mentioned, the physical intelligence, like shooting a basketball and then musical intelligence, you know, let's say practicing, like these two types of intelligence, I feel like you can grow, cultivate and develop them through, you know, deliberate practice, let's say. But that emotional intelligence, how can we grow and develop that part of our intelligence? That's a really interesting one. All of these kinds of intelligence involve a combination of innate ability and learning. It takes both of them because if you're going to be good at them, you're going to probably have to have some innate ability that's built into your brain at birth, but then it gets way better when you learn from experience. Uh, that's obviously with basketball. You don't become LeBron James just by having innate talent. He obviously had an enormous amount of it, but he also practices. He works as hard as anybody in the game to improve. But emotional intelligence can be somewhat like that too. So you can get better at it by training. What kind of training? Well, there's some evidence that one way you get better emotional intelligence is to read really good novels. Not crap. <laughs> Not just thrillers with five-word sentences and no story. But if you're reading really good novels like Les Miserables, for example, or by good writers like Margaret Atwood, you can learn a lot about people and about their emotions. And uh, so that, that's one way. There are other ways you get it just by interacting with people. And so if you're interacting with other people who've got emotional intelligence, you'll pick things up for them. One of the keys to emotional intelligence is empathy, which is getting a sense of other people's feelings. And people probably are born with some innate differences there, but everybody can get better at it by thinking about it, watching what other people do, paying attention to other people, talking with people, and reading first-rate novels. So I think empathy can be improved as well as we get more experience with other people. Some people simply don't have it. If you look, take psychopaths, for example, or narcissists, they just are probably incapable of empathy, and they really miss out a lot. Sometimes they can be very successful when they're ruthless, but People don't like them. People don't want to work with them. People start to hate them eventually. Thank you very much for that. I um, never really thought about it that way. Read, read really good fiction, and you can develop that emotional intelligence uh, muscle. So you also talk about a really fascinating paper that you came across by Marvin Minsky in uh, 1978. Talk to us about what that paper was about, and what was it that you found interesting about it? Okay, this is going way back to really the first year where I stumbled across cognitive science because of the psychologists that I met. And a number of the psychologists were making references to this guy, and I hadn't even heard of this field called artificial intelligence. Uh, but there was connections happening between the psychologists who interest me and people doing AI, which is trying to get computers to do that. Now, Marvin Minsky was one of the founders of artificial intelligence. He was one of the six people who got the field going at a conference in 1956. And he went on to become the director of the artificial intelligence lab at MIT. And through psychology, I came across this paper he wrote about frames. And it provided a different way of thinking about thinking for me. Because I was trained in philosophy, so I was trained in logic. And so I was trained to think of inference as being a step-by-step -step serial process. You believe this, and then this, and then this, and this. Uh, that's because that's the way logic works. But Minsky had a very different picture, which was much more consistent with the way psychologists think, is it's more a matter of pattern matching. You've got a bunch of patterns in your head that you've acquired. Psychologists tend to call them schemas. 
Minsky calls them frames. And so the frame was a computational schema or pattern that you could apply to different situations. And it's a really powerful way of thinking of how you do things. I mean, suppose you go into a restaurant you've never been to before. Well, you can look around and see pretty quickly what kind of restaurant it is. Is it a fast food restaurant? Is it a really classy restaurant? Is it a sort of middle steakhouse? And so you classify it. How do you classify things? Well, you don't do it by doing a series of logical deductions. What you do instead is you take this pattern, which Mincy called a frame, and you pattern match and you realize, oh, this fits the frame for fast food restaurant. And then you know what to do because then you're not going to go looking for a fancy table and a waiter. You're going to go up to the counter and make an order at the counter. Uh, so it was a, a powerful way of, of thinking about how you can deal with situations in the world by pattern matching rather than logical inference. It's very interesting. You also talk about some marvelous machines in your book, talking about what they do, how they work, you know, how well do they satisfy benchmarks, and how they fall short of, of human intelligence. And one I found really interesting, um, just because it's really relevant to, I think, a lot of the audience here, uh, data scientists, would be uh, recommender systems. So talk to us about that. I picked that example because everyone's familiar with recommender systems. So on Netflix, you watch a movie, and then next time you sign on, it recommends similar movies. Or you've done shopping on Amazon for books or something else, and the next time it's going to say, why don't you consider this book? Because it's got an algorithm that will do this. And these are really sophisticated machine learning algorithms. They've managed to train on vast amounts of data and produce patterns of human behavior that they can use to predict what people are going to like in the future. So one of the reasons I was interested in this is that it's a kind of analogy, it's, which is something I did a lot of work on, including computer models. They are giving you suggestions about what's analogous to what you liked in the past. And they're doing it not just based on your experience, but on whole packages of experience that they've got from millions and millions of users. So what the recommender systems do is look at what you've done in the past, look what you bought, look what, how you've rated things, and on that basis, in comparison with other people, take a guess, and they're often very good guesses, at what you're likely to like in the future. And how does this fall short of human intelligence? Well, it's very good for its purpose because Netflix and Amazon make an awful lot of money out of this. But if you compare it to the kinds of thinking that people do, it falls short in a number of ways. One is it's not really doing analogy. It's just going on simple features. Humans can do amazingly complicated analogies. They're used in scientific discovery. They're used in decision-making. They're used in creating music where you have very complicated structures. And what Netflix or Amazon do with the recommender system is just boil it down to something much more simple, just a bunch of features. So the sort of thing you can train your neural network on. But you're not doing complex or analogical thinking the way that people can when they do really major discoveries in fields like science. So that's one way it falls short. Another way it's obviously really different is emotion. When you recommend a movie to someone else or a book that you've read to someone else, you do it because you liked it. <laughs> it's evoked your emotions. It's evoked happiness. It's maybe made you sad for part of the time, but it also made you feel excited or stimulated. And so when you like something, it's because of your emotions and you recommend things to other people because you've got empathy with them. And so you think they would like it too. But Netflix and Amazon know nothing about emotions. And so they're not doing the same kind of thinking that people are. 
we're doing a, a good fill-in for it, a good substitute for it, but not having the full level of intelligence that people have when we're able to use rich, complex analogies and we're able to mingle them with emotions to give people, I think, much richer kinds of suggestions. And humans were able to do it on much less data, for example, right? I could just tell you the name of one movie that that I like, and just based on that one title, you might be able to infer that, oh, you might like this movie, that movie, that movie, right? Well, especially if I know you and I know your tastes. So I've got two sons. One of them recommends a movie. I go for it right away. The other tends to like uh, <laughs> action shows and comic books. And no, those don't. I know that doesn't work for me. So it's a combination of knowing the source and knowing the extent to which their experience and their preferences, which are emotional preferences, match yours. You also talk about some amazing animals in your book. One that I found was really interesting was the the octopus and how it's intelligent in its own way. Would you mind talking to us about that? Yeah, I put in octopuses as because they're astonishing. First of all, they're a mollusk. <laughs> so mollusks are things like snails, which you don't expect to be particularly intelligent. But evolution produced octopuses with amazingly large brains. Their brains have got up to half a billion neurons. And so they have as many neurons as more than a cat, as much as a dog. And these brains are completely unlike our brains. Our brains are very centralized, and obviously in our heads. But the neurons in the in the octopus not only operate in its head, they're distributed across its arms. It's just like it's got eight mini brains operating neurons with neurons in each of its arms. So it's got a much more distributed kind of brain than us. And it uses this brain power to do quite amazing things. So octopuses can solve complex problems like opening jars. They're also really good at escaping from aquariums because they can look around and figure out what's going to be the way out. They also can recognize particular people. One octopus in one aquarium developed a dislike for one particular keeper. So other people walked by, did nothing. This keeper walks by, the octopus would squirt them. So they can do very complicated kinds of perceptions and problem solving and learning, which is just astonishing for a mollusk. Do they kind of do the same type of pattern matching as us, or is it a different way? Well, obviously, they don't have language, so they can't deal with verbal concepts by restaurants. But sure, they're doing pattern matching. The way you recognize a person, the way that they could tell one keeper from another is it's a whole pattern. What, is, what does the face look like? What does the hair look like? I don't know exactly what features it's noticing, but it's a pattern that it's working with. And the same thing enables it to uh, sometimes solve really complicated problems like finding shells that it can carry around to make a home for itself. So they... They can really use patterns to solve problems in a way that the animals with simpler brain organization like snails just can't. Thank you very much. I want to get into now ethics of artificial intelligence. And you talk about this in your book as well. You use the principles of, the, of medical ethics as a framework for AI ethics, namely you know, autonomy, justice, benefit, avoiding harm. So why use this framework? Well, let me say first how this problem arose. About 10 years ago, artificial intelligence really started to take off. And the field's been around since 1956, but it's had a lot of ups and downs. There are times when it looks like it was good, and then, but those methods didn't work out. But around 10 years ago, new methods were being developed. The most prominent has been deep learning, that suddenly we're having some amazing successes. And suddenly, 
cars were driving themselves, which hadn't been possible before. Suddenly, companies like Netflix and Amazon and many, many other, and Google, were coming up with really good algorithms for doing really complicated things. I'll consider, for example, machine translation. That's been around for a long time. It didn't used to be very good. Now it's really quite good. Or things like voice recognition, which is a really hard problem because people's voices are so different, their sounds are so different. But now it's really good. People talk to Alexa or Siri or Google, and it, and it works really well. So around 10 years ago, it was starting to appear that artificial intelligence was really going to take off. And a lot of people in the field very responsibly realized, wow, this could be dangerous. This could be something that could have huge implications for human beings. And really famous people like Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking, Bill Gates are saying, hey, we got to watch out. The computers might get so smart that they're going to take over the world. And we're not sure we want that. Some people do want that. Some people think it would be a better world if computers were in charge, but most people are aghast at it. So a lot of people in the field of artificial intelligence, as well as outside, started to get really worried. And the way that lots of companies reacted was to start generating principles, because they said, oh, we need some principles for figuring out how it's going to work. But then a lot of different companies did this. There's more, at least 60 different organizations and companies have generated their own principles for artificial intelligence. So I noticed this and I started wondering, well, wow, they're all over the place. I mean, there's overlap, but how can you make sense of these? 60 different principles. Some companies only have about 10 principles, like, MI, like IBM, but other places generate dozens of them. How do you make sense of it? And then I thought of medical ethics because I've taught medical ethics and knew that field. And I knew that in that field, people often work with a small set of principles, just four principles. And so I thought, well, can these four principles, which I think actually make sense, it's principles of justice and equality, principles about being benefits for people, avoiding harm, can these principles make sense of the vast array? And so one of the things I did in the, what became the last chapter of Bots and Beasts is to show that, yes, this huge proliferation of more than 60 sets of principles of 10 to 30 apiece can actually fall under this quite four principles for medical ethics. So that's one reason. Um, a second reason is these principles have worked well within medical ethics. They're in medical ethics textbooks and people use them for all sorts of really hard problems when you see, for example, cases where you've got conflicts between people's autonomy, they want to choose their own treatment, but also question what's going to be beneficial for them or what's going to cause harm. And so you've got those, and people in medical ethics have sorted that out. But the third reason that I really like these four principles is that they quite delicately balance a lot of principles that have been proposed in other kinds of ethics. So for many people, the ethics they grew up with are the ethics from their religion. But these four principles actually fit well with a lot of principles that are religious. I mean, they don't say that they came from God, but nevertheless, you end up with a lot of the same conclusions. Why, why shouldn't you kill people? Well, because you're going to cause them harm. And so a lot of the religious principles fall under there as well. And it's also a way of combining the main approaches to ethics that philosophers have talked about. Some are in terms of rights and duties, other in terms of greatest good for the greatest number. But those four principles quite concisely cover both those approaches to ethics. In the next two to five years, which principle do you think is going to be of most concern to society? Well, one principle we always have to be worried about is the avoid the harm. 
um, because I think it would be very harmful if, in fact, computers took over the world. Why? Because they're not going to make decisions that are in the interest of human beings. Before, earlier, we talked about how humans make decisions using their emotions, and we can understand other people's decisions by, by empathy with their emotions. Computers are psychopaths. They don't have emotions. They can do fabulous calculations. As far as numerical calculations, they can do way faster than humans can. They're fabulous at arithmetic. They're fabulous at doing uh, Bayesian inference with probabilities, better, much better than humans are. So they're great with numbers, but they're not good with feelings. And so there's no guarantee at all that a computer that was making decisions on its own would have anything like empathy for the needs of human beings. So the idea of having a computer that took over the world, even if it had some principles you tried to build in to be good to people, there's no way it would stick because it doesn't actually care about people. So I think the highest principle there is avoid harm of the sort that can happen if you had some psychopathic computer running the world. And so that avoiding harm, does it, it really starts with us data scientists, machine learning practitioners who are kind of behind the algorithms and the ones creating them, right? Right. So people, when they do, when they build algorithms, they need to pay attention to what values are going into it. And so any, any algorithm for accomplishing something has got values. Uh, is the value that you're just trying to make money for the company? Or are you trying to further the interests of the people who are going to be using the product? Or are your algorithms going to be enabling some particular country to dominate other countries or to practice surveillance on all the people so it can control them? So data scientists, people in artificial intelligence, need to be constantly aware of what uses their products are being used for. Is this, in fact, doing it for the good of the people generally, or is it only going to be good for a few rulers or a few people who are going to get filthy rich off using those algorithms? So how can we instill human values into the systems? It's hard to do it in the systems because you might think, well, we could just apply the four principles, principles like harm and benefits, and you can put the, some of that in your, in your algorithms. But what you can't put so easily is, well, how to care about those things. So good human decision makers care about justice. They care about equity. They care about the freedom of the people who are involved. They care about not harming the people they're dealing with. And so what you can do is, even in an AI program, is try to put in at least some approximation to that. So that when you're doing a cost-benefit calculation, it isn't just looking at one group of people, say rich people, and ignoring poor people. Or it's make sure that it's covering people of different uh, genders and different colors, and it's actually capturing people all across the world. So the slogan that I used to sum this up, it originates with Gandhi, actually, and something he said is need not greed. So a lot of decisions are made in the tech world based on greed. And sometimes it's greed for profit, sometimes it's greed for power, sometimes it's tied in with companies, sort of countries that are greedy for power. So that's the greed side. The need part is looking at what humans need. Now, this is going back to what we talked about with the meaning of life. Humans have basic needs for love, work, and play, which are tied into psychological needs, as well as, of course, all the biological needs we have for food, water, air, health care, and housing. And so you can make the big decisions in a way that satisfies the needs of all people rather than the greed of just a few. And when it comes to, to making decisions we talked about earlier, how the brain 
you know, represents actions and goals and and proceeds to make a decision that way. Does that change at all when it comes to AI systems? Well, it depends. Some people build AI for human good. Some companies have been established specifically uh, for that, but uh, that's not always the case. If, with the, when the AI is in the hand of government, some governments, or when the AI is in the hands of some companies, it's serving greed rather than need. So you've got to have leaders in these fields, including government leaders and corporate leaders, being careful to make decisions based on principles. Uh, I think the four principles pretty much cover it. Other companies have gotten longer, but they, they pretty much cover it quite well. So if what you're doing is figuring out who's going to be affected by this, what harms are there going to be, what benefits are there going to be, are you going to take away their freedom, are you going to apply this fairly to different groups of people, if you cover those principles, then I think you're being quite ethical in your development of data science or artificial intelligence. Thank you very much for that, Dr. Thagard. So. One last question before we jump into a quick uh, random round here. And 100 years into the future, what is it that you want to be remembered for? I don't think I'll be remembered 100 years from now. <laughs> if, if even one of my books is being read, I'd be, I'd be absolutely delighted. That's hard to, hard to predict. I'm actually really concerned about what kind of condition the world's going to be like 100 years from now. There's huge, huge problems. Uh, right now, everybody's focused on the pandemic. But, and, but that eventually will pass, but there's going to be other pandemics. So, and the, bigger, the far bigger long-term problem that I think is terrifying is climate change. And other problems are that there are signs that governments are becoming more and more oppressive. You see that with the world, the kind of United States that Donald Trump wants to have, but lots of other leaders in the world are dictating. So if you put together dictatorial leaders and climate change and pandemics then I'm not sure the prospects for the world is very good. So I don't spend any time thinking about whether anyone's going to be reading my books 100 years from now. So let's go ahead and jump into a uh, quick lightning round with that. So what is it that you're currently most excited about or that you're currently exploring? Right now I'm writing a book on balance. And it's both about the physiology of balance, how it is that we managed to walk down the street without falling over, it's also about ways in which it fails. For example, a lot of people get vertigo or they get dizzy. And I'm actually trying to give a neuroscience theoretical account of how this works. There's loads of stuff about how the anatomy and the physiology of the brain works to produce those sorts of balance. But I've got a new take drawing on new ideas from theoretical neuroscience on how the brain actually puts it all together. So that's the first part. The second part, though, notices that in so many different fields, we use balance metaphors. For example, when I was talking about the meaning of life, I talked about balancing life and work. Well, what's the nature of that metaphor and how does it connect back to the balance that we do when we're walking down the street? How do we consider balancing as operating in lots of other things such as nature, when you talk about the balance of nature? So I'm interested in both how the brain balances us, but also how these ideas about balancing become metaphors by which we understand so much other parts of our lives. What do you believe that other people think is crazy? I couldn't think of anything that I believe that almost everybody thinks is crazy. I guess I've got some views that aren't terribly popular these days. If you think about what kinds of government should we have, there seems to be a general trend toward more and more autocratic kinds of government. But I actually think that the world is 
come across a fairly reasonable kind of government. It's called social democracy, where you manage to have all the freedom that comes from having a fairly open economy, but you have the social responsibility from taking into account people's needs. And countries like uh, the Scandinavian countries and Canada on its good days, I think, have managed to carry out that balance really pretty well. So that's by no means a majority view, but that's something I think is quite important. If you could have a billboard put up anywhere, what would you put on it? The slogan that I told you before, need not greed. I would be great to see that all, all over the freeways in Canada. As I said, it wasn't, I, I didn't coin that. It's been around for a while. I, th- I think it originated with a saying of Gandhi. He says, the world has enough for everyone's need, but not for everyone's greed. And that boils down into need not greed is a really nice three-year-old slogan that I'd love to see on a billboard. I like that a lot too. What are you currently reading? Well, I'm always reading lots of things. So I'm reading a lot of books connected with balance, not just in, I've been reading about balance in art and movies, for example, so that I've just written a section describing Hitchcock's great movie, Vertigo. And so I read a couple of books about the making of Vertigo because that's a kind of, of uh, balance story. Most recently, today, I'm reading a book that my son gave me called Breathe. And he gave it to me because he knew I was working on balance and he thought I'd enjoy reading a book about another physiological process, which is quite fascinating. I didn't realize just how bad humans are as a result of the fact that we got big brains, which mean which means we could get lots of food by cooking, which means we didn't need very big mouths, but now our mouths have too much teeth and our nose isn't very well structured, and lots of people have breathing and eating problems as a result. So that's being a lot of fun. That's interesting. Speaking of Hitchcock, I just uh, thought it was funny coincidence. I was reading 33 Strategies of War by Robert Greene, and that was earlier today in one of the chapters he was talking at great length about Hitchcock. So that's interesting that was brought up. So what song do you currently have on repeat? I just added a couple of songs to my iTunes list. One of them, at least the one politically most interesting, is by Mickey Guyton, who I only heard about a couple of weeks ago and been listening to her music. She's extremely rare. She's a country singer who's black. I've never seen, I know of of a couple of black male country singers, but I've never actually heard of a black female country singer and she's really good and the song that has been a kind of breakthrough song for is called black like me which i think is incredibly powerful and uh that's a current favorite of mine definitely have to check that out yeah i've uh, never heard of that either so we're going to open up the random question generator just to do a few random questions here so let's go ahead and pull this up all right what's an unpopular opinion you have i think we kind of touched that on on the what you what do you think that other people what do you believe other people think is crazy but if you want to answer this go for it well i mentioned that the social democracy i yeah. don't know I mean, obviously most people in the world are religious and so i, I we know that because there's surveys it's something like 80 percent of the world are religious and so i'm an atheist so that's an unpopular opinion what's the story behind one of your scars <laughs> well i've got a few but the most amusing one I got when I was about eight years old, and my younger brother, David, had a nail file in his hand, and I guess I thought he shouldn't be having a nail file, so I said, give that to me, and he stabbed me. (laughs) I still have the scar. In your group of friends, what role do you play? That's an interesting question, because there are lots of 
roles, people. I think all my groups of friends are quite egalitarian, so there's not going to be a leader or something like that. I like everybody to be happy. I like people to smile. And so I guess I tend to tell a lot of jokes. What's the best piece of advice you have ever received? Probably something my father said to me. My father wasn't educated. He, he grew up in Winnipeg in a working class family, never got past grade 11. But he had some good practical wisdom. And he said something like this to me. He said, reach for the top and whatever happens, land on your feet. <laughs> and the, the reason that's a good thing, because you want to have high aspirations. You want to try to achieve as much as you can. But you also have to realize that not everything is going to work. And so you're going to end up being okay, even if you don't manage to accomplish those very high goals that you set for yourself. I love it. Dr. Thagard, how can people connect with you? Where can they find you online? The easiest way is through my website, which is paulthagard.com. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here to come on the show. I really appreciate everything you've discussed with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much.